We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. This morning, I'm going to draw your attention to a book that has the same name as I have, the book of James. I want to draw attention here for a while. This is a familiar book, and it's been taught from this pulpit, I don't know, many times. But I got focused on it, and I thought, well, I'm going to share with you some of what I've been looking at. It has a lot to say to us who are Christians, who are living, as it were, today and in our time, and there's much for us to learn from it. We want to provide or give a little bit about the context out of which the book was written, or from which it was written. One of the things we do when we look at scripture is we try to give some consideration, some consideration to the audience that was the first recipients of the letter and try to understand a little bit about <coughs> what their circumstances were, what their setting was, what was going on with them, out of which an epistle such as this one will be written. And so I'm going to do, talk a little bit about that. But first, the name, James. You know from reading the scriptures that the name James is a common name. And that it comes from, and I think it would be proper to say a Greek form of the name Jacob, as we read in Hebrew. So it's a popular name. So now when we have this book, James, and we read of different Jameses in the New Testament, we raise the question for ourselves, well, who wrote this one? Who wrote this epistle? And we have a conclusion but what I want to do is to point to some of those mentions of the name James as we find it in our scriptures. First, I want to draw your attention to one James who is identified as a son of Zebedee and the brother of John. Now, we read about him. I have a reference here in Matthew chapter 4, in verses 17 to 22. And I'll just read these words right from my printed notes here. James, the son of Zebedee and brother, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, so one of these Jameses was one of the pair which comprised the sons of thunder. 
Now, that's quite a bold name, but uh, that's one of them. The next one is the James that we find in Matthew 10, verse 3. And he is called the son of Alphaeus. And it says in verse 3, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. That's our second one. And now in Luke chapter 6 and verse 16, we find another Judas, James the father of Judas the disciple. And it says that Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. So now we have three Jameses, and we don't take either one of those three to be the one who is the author of the book. And now we come to James, the brother of the Lord. We take him to be the one who is the author of this epistle. Let me read some concerning him. In Matthew chapter 13, in verses 55 and 56, this is what we read. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James? Josie's or Joseph, Simon and Judas. And in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So this portion is telling us that there was a James who was born of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus. And so we call him the brother of James. We understand that they shared a mother but not a father, but he is the brother. So we want to say a few things about him. And the first point we want to say is, you know, as the Lord Jesus went about his ministry. People listened and heard. Some people came to believe that he was indeed the Messiah, that he was the one who was to come. Indeed, that he was the one who had been prophesied. But now, in the early going, or at the outset, this James didn't believe. Now we know he came to believe, but at the outset he didn't. But that's nothing new, because that's how we all start out. No one starts out believing. We all come to belief. But God brings us to it if we come. 
So in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 to 35, we see that, that of him not leaving. And also in John chapter 5, 1 through 5, I want to read from John chapter, chapter 7. And, and so what I'm doing is lifting some portions of scripture here so that the summary of statements that I'm making are not just uh, without scriptural basis. And you can see that. In chapter 7 of John, it says, And these things, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you have done, or that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret, while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it, that its works are evil. We should think on that. Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to James. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 3 through 5, it says, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And in verse number seven it says, after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. And then Paul goes on to say, and last of all, he was seen by him as one who was born out of due time. After the Lord had come back from the dead, he had prophesied that he was going to be killed and raised up again on the third day. We talked about that yesterday at the men's meeting. Brother Jansen was leaving us. This James saw him after he rose. Now, Jesus coming into the world and having the ministry that he had and all the things that happened around that time and then after his departure, after his 40 days with the disciples, 
talking with them about the things pertaining to the kingdom and all of that and then his ascension. A lot went on after that. And we lead now into the context out of which the people were living, or in which the people were living at the time this epistle was written. This James became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. In fact, he was referred to as a pillar of the church. He led in the council of Jerusalem when they had some dispute. I want to read just a couple of verses from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 9. Then after 14 years, the Apostle Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And in verse 9, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And so this James now was a prominent man in that uh, fellowship and in that city of Jerusalem among the believers, the believing Jews. He was a prominent man at this time. When Peter, we read about in Acts 12, was in prison, and God released him from prison miraculously, and it took him a bit to understand that what had happened was real. <laughs> he, he didn't get it at first. But then he came to realize, yes, God has delivered me out of this prison. And one of the things that he did was sent a message, a special message to James. This James, who we say is the author of the epistle we have here, the human author, as it were, in Acts chapter 1. Let me just turn to my Acts 1 in my Bible here, and I will read a few verses there. In Acts chapter 1 and beginning in verse 1. No, I'm sorry, I said 1, but it should be Acts 12 beginning at verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some among the church. Now this it's getting into some serious uh, tension here. The situation is getting tense. He stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. And look at the next verse here. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. You know, when I think about that, we can only imagine what it would be like and what it was like for them who were a part of the Christian community then. And when Herod began to act like he did, and then when he put one of them to death, this is James, they know that they're in a serious situation. They know that their persecution is real. 
It's not imagined. And it's not across the world somewhere from where they are. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread. And so that's Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. I'm going to skip down to verses 16 and 17. This is after Peter had been released from the prison. After the shackles had fallen off and the door had opened. And the guards had no part in it. And in fact, they were perplexed to say, well, whatever happened to Peter? Where is it? What happened? God released him. It's what happened. And after that, Peter continued knocking. It said they went to the house there where the disciples were, and he was knocking. In verse 16, he continued knocking. When they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. And so Peter, after having been in prison because of his taking a stand for the Lord and for those things which belong to him. In this time, he had been delivered by God. Now he wanted the word to go and be given to them, to the other disciples, by James and the others, so that they would know what God had done. That would be an encouragement to them to know that God was at work in the midst of the circumstances they found themselves in and that they could trust him. But the thing is, not every time, just as it was with James, James is put to death. God didn't allow that to be the portion for Peter at that time. But he could have. But the point is, is that God is in control. He had not lost, lost control. He didn't lose control when James was put to death and he was still in control when he freed Peter. It is according to his own divine plan that he did it that way. But I think it's of special importance to the, those ones who heard and were a part of the community to see that the power of God is not diminished and the death of James, the brother of John, was not a result of a diminished power of God or some kind of insufficient power. It was not that. It was God's own timing to do according to his own goodwill for his own purposes. And now we talked about this audience. Now in James In the first verse, it says, James, a bondservant of God, out of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first part of that verse. And so now we've talked a bit about this James. 
We talked about him being a brother of the Lord. We talked about him having become a prominent person there in the Jerusalem church, a pillar of the church, as it were, a man of great importance in his place. And he introduces himself in this epistle in two ways. By name and by association. By name and association. James, we just talked about that. And the association is, he says he is a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That association, bond servant, servant. And one of the things, and it seems like all the commentators that I have to look at make mention of the fact that in this introduction of himself, all James says is bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ in reference to in this, verse, this place here. That's what he says. He didn't say he's an apostle. He didn't say he's a brother of the Lord. He didn't say that he was a prominent man in the Jerusalem church. He, none of that. He said, I'm a bond servant. Now, the way that we think about bond servant is important. And it's, it's, part of, it's important for us to know that when he says that he's a bond servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is speaking of an elevated position. That's an elevated position to be a bond servant of the Lord. Oftentimes, we think of a servant as a, as a degraded position. But James is not in a degraded position. He's actually in an elevated position. It's, it's important for us to get that. So he says, God and the Lord Jesus Christ, and also we understand that he's not saying two of different levels, but two on an equal level. As we say, members of the Trinity, of the Trinitarian unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so there's no diminishment of Jesus to the Father or any of that equality in the Godhead. And so this James then says, this is who he is, his name, and he's saying the most important thing for you to recognize right now concerning me is this. The Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing for you. Now, he says, or he tells us now who the primary audience is. And he says to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, or some translation may have, in the dispersion, they were spread out. But he says here, 
the 12 tribes. So we know that what he's talking about there are the Jewish people, the physical Jewish people. But he's, uh, in the next verse we'll see that his letter specifically is directed more closely than just the generic Jewish people who are scattered abroad in the 12, the 12 tribes who are scattered. But he talks about that. And so he says, my, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. I want to say a little bit about that. And I have a few verses I want to look at. Because one of the interesting things is, is that the word scattered or spread, according to one of the things I was reading, if it's correct, it said it has the idea of scattering, as in scattering of seed. Well, you know that one of the things that happened after they were scattered, they carried the gospel with them, and so the gospel got planted in various places because of the scattering. But there was a means by which they came to be scattered. We understand that. But God was working his program in the midst of those persecutors doing theirs. And they were instruments in God's program, unbeknownst to them. In Acts chapter 8, let me read a little bit here. The scattered group here. Acts tells us a lot of details about what went on in the transition period after the Lord came on the scene. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now Saul was consenting to his death. This is talking about the death of Stephen, which is spoken about in the prior chapter, chapter 7. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So, some have said that was God's way of getting them to move out from Jerusalem. You know, the Lord has said, just tarry until the Spirit comes. And then they were to disperse with the gospel. And they did. But it was a time of great persecution. In chapter 11, verse 19. Here's what we read. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them believed and turned to the Lord. 
And so the word was getting out and people were hearing and people were believing and they were becoming a part of that group that carries the gospel word. It was a time of transition. And there were some difficulties. And some things had to be set straight as far as doctrine with the Gentiles coming in and the Jews and what the relationship should be and the relations to the law and all that. And James was a man who came up. He's in the tradition, the Moses tradition. We all get all that. And so we see from chapter 12 in Genesis, we see about that, that time of transition and some of the trials and difficulties and, and all that. And so when you think about that kind of a background, and then we come to this epistle of James being an early, I think probably, I think it's the earliest of the written epistles. And he's writing, we estimate, in the mid-AD 40s. So this was a time which was, shall we say, for the believers, it was a difficult time. And they were scattered out. And James is writing to them. One of the things that you will notice in the book of James is he says, my brethren. Now, when I spoke about how James identified himself, that identified himself first by his name and then his association with the Lord. But here's another way, too, that he identifies himself. He identifies with those to whom he's writing. He calls them my brethren. They're his brethren. There are two ways in which it can be thought of as brethren. One is, is the idea that they are his physical brethren, by physical descent. But the other is a brother in the Lord. Uh, in verse 18 of James chapter 1, it says, of his own will, this is speaking of God, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So that God had done a work in these ones to, who are the primary audience and brought them to the place of salvation. And so he writes to them and he says, my brethren. I think he uses, I think that phrase is 15 times used in this. Three times he says, my beloved brethren. My beloved brethren. So he had three ways that he's identified himself just with his name, with the one to whom he is a bondservant, and then with those to whom he is bringing, giving this word, this message of encouragement to them. And so what does he say to them? And what I put in my notes here, the imperatives begin. The imperatives. This is one of the noted features we see in James that he uses a lot of imperatives. He's telling them, do this. And I say that the, the imperatives begin. And so this is what he says here in, in the next verse, verse 2. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into barriers, 
trials. That's interesting. Sometimes we think if we can avoid having to have these trials, we'd like it that way. But he doesn't say if you have. He says when you have. That's assured. And we can say that too. That there are certain trials that will come our way if we determine and focus and, and decide that we're going to make the effort to do the things that God requires of us. But sometimes just taking a stand to do that is going to cause trials. <laughs> Some trials to be your portion. And he's telling them what to do about that. Their circumstances were very difficult to think about. But he says, count it all joy. So that is saying there is a way to think about what's going on. And that's, that's really kind of interesting because you notice that, and I skipped over this, but the last word in verse 1 is the word greetings. And so after that introductory part and introduction of his primary audience, he gives this word greetings. And that's a word that basically means joy or rejoice or be glad. And so he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's one thing to say that. But if they're going to be able to do it, my proposition is that they have to know something. Otherwise, they can't do it. But he says there, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Now, this is interesting because what he's saying is that if you do this, down the line is the result. Look there. Now, I want us to think about this. We won't get there today. But when we get to this portion that talks about the desires and sin and death, it's the same principle. Look to the end and see what's there. Because those desires, I'm going to briefly touch it here. In verse 15, when desire conceived, it brings or gives birth to sin. Talking about these desires that are not from God. And sin, when it becomes full grown, brings forth death. His own desires, our own desires, can be those kind. And so the wise thing to, then to do is to say, okay, certain desires are rising up in me. 
that lead to death. Now that I know that, get to work. Snuff them out. Because of what I know. He said here to them, let patience, knowing that the test of your faith produces patience. Patience is a, is a virtue. You need it. And so he says there, count it joy. Because down the line, if you respond properly to it, there's going to be a benefit. And so you choose to do what he says. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience in verse 4. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So there he says it. So we can raise to ourselves a question. And they could say to themselves who were receiving this letter, this which James says comes at the end of doing what he said to do is to be full grown, grown up and complete. Not a baby needing to feed continually upon milk, but a grown up and complete, not lacking. That's a wonderful thing. So we can say to ourselves, well, is that an aspiration that I have? If it is, and James is saying, here's what you can do. If it's not, make it one. And then do what he says. There. And the time for this hour is gone. But let me just say the next verse here, where he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives to all liberally and upbraids not that it will be given him. God is not going to be mean towards someone who's asking for wisdom, his wisdom, but willingly given. He's inviting us to pray to him. And that's another thing we see about James. One of the things that I read is that somebody in tradition and you know how people write and they thought about this James as a man who prayed so much that his knees were greatly calloused because he was praying all the time prayer we need to keep working at it and ask for the Lord's help I'm going to close Heavenly Father, we have gathered and we've opened the word and we've spent this time. And now we ask by your spirit to cause it to not have been in vain, but that it would be helpful to each of us, for me and all who hear, heard and or will hear, for your own glory. For your praise, we ask in the name, name of Christ our Savior with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you kindly for your attention.